I think the idea of like state sanctioned art is absolutely nothing new. I mean, like, you know, in Mesopotamia, Egypt and all of that kind of stuff. So as soon as you start having art, like the state or whoever is in power wants to try and send very specific messages about their wealth and power. Hey there, it's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do over time and across cultures. Because being human is a curious gig. Hey, here's a question. What do you think of when you hear the phrase public art? What is it? Who is it for? What's its purpose anyway? Today, we're going to be exploring all of these questions and more with archaeologist and educator Laura Aitken-Burt on the topic of ancient Greco-Roman sculptors and the place and influence of state-sanctioned art in society. Laura studied at the University of Oxford and has worked across a wide range of archaeological and historical periods with specialties in Greek, Hellenistic, and Roman history, as well as Egyptian and Near Eastern studies. She currently teaches classics, history, and politics in London and is co-authoring a new series of textbooks for ages 11 to 14 on global history to be published next year by HarperCollins. You can find her on Twitter at Lab Historical. Laura, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is a really interesting topic just in and of itself for the history of it. I mean, I think it's something I personally haven't thought a whole lot about, which is sort of when did when did people in, in the distant past start sculpting? Um, but also this question about art you know, particularly created for for public view and public consumption. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this today. <laughs> I guess there is a big question in the first place, just about art in general. Is it always for public consumption? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's supposedly you create some kind of art for someone to see, you know, maybe it's a, a, a wider or smaller audience, but ultimately is it for an audience of some kind does that make sense um oh, so exactly I I yeah, yeah I love just thinking about how that then plays out in history because we yeah like you said kind of like often think of ourselves as um I don't know more more modern or different but actually usually when so you go back in history it's the same story you know <laughs> funny that we humans yes we're not actually as creative as we think sometimes um or frankly as revolutionary but um uh, but that that's we're getting ahead of ourselves but i i think this is going to be a really interesting and timely conversation and it would be great to get you to sort of lay down the context for what we're going to be talking about and so please tell us why and how the practice of sculpting for public view arose in the forms that it did in antiquity. Okay, so I'm, I'm mainly going to focus today on um, ancient Greece and Rome. So kind of, you know, the Great. periods generally from 500 BC to like mm, about 200 AD. So in, in that context, for the Greeks, at least, usually the sculptures that we have are public consumption in religious contexts. So for honouring gods, sometimes for individual achievements as well um, but often even if a sculpture is uh, has the name of an individual attached to it um, it's still dedicated in honor of a god um, and 
equally particularly when we get to kind of um imperial athens um in the mid fifth century there's a you know huge influxes of wealth um and we start to see art being used as a as a way to display how uh, certain areas have more wealth than others let's say um and then as we kind of move into the hellenistic period so after um the conquests of alexander the great um we start to see kind of more dramatic and larger compositions being uh made to have more of a dramatic effect to kind of you know bring that uh greek sculptural uh kind of uh yeah kind of comp compositions of lots of uh, heroes and, and and gods interacting with each other and often sometimes that did that was more connected to the Hellenistic monarchs themselves um, in the various areas of the Hellenistic world and then when we get to uh, Rome in, in 146 Greece is conquered by Rome and Rome is uh, incredibly um, uh, kind of overawed by the uh, sculpture that they see in ancient Greece and take on a lot of um, the Kind of artistic forms taking actually quite a lot of greek sculptors to rome for example to work in 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 rome and then uh, as we start to get into the imperial period um with the rise of augustus then we start to see sculpture taking again a slightly different form of trying to um emphasize the power of the uh, emperor but in a kind of interesting way because of course Augustus was trying to claim that he was um defending the republic but as an emperor you can't really be yeah kind <laughs> of slippery of that I yeah. know that age of Augustus I love it. it's so interesting <laughs> isn't it but yeah art was a great a great player in that fact so fantastic well this is terrific and um you know I, I, I guess I wonder how the practice of, of 3D composition in this manner fit into existing frameworks for artistic expression. So, I mean, yeah, we're, although I'm gonna be focusing on Greece and Rome uh, today, like, you know, they have so much influence from Egypt in the Near East, um, you know, the huge, uh, you know, monolithic statues in, in, in Egypt to represent pharaohs and gods, for example. Um, they're usually much more static in in the way in which they're composed. So um, usually, kind of only um, on one kind of like plane, and like they're either kind of like presented frontally or um, uh, in profile. Um, and the Greeks, kind of in the in the beginning of the fifth century, start to play with this. So in the archaic period, um, Koroi statues, as we call them, look very Egyptian in style, um, although they are um naked forms so in egypt you don't have that you they, they're always um at least partially clothed and the kind of uh, muscle definition for example is kind of just like incised and and, and not very yeah realistic um yeah much more stylized let's say um mm. but as we start getting into the fifth century we start to see the greeks um trying to create out of um bronze mainly um but also marble as well um sculptures that are much more lifelike that almost you know when we look at them today um the roman copies that still survive of most of them 
they look almost like you know humans that you can touch you know um you know, the, 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 yeah they really do don't they um and, and, and the, and the, the that... folds of clothing sometimes are yeah. what get me I mean not that the musculature isn't incredible and and you know displays this in- incredible understanding of the human anatomy but wow the fabric always is what gets me <laughs> yeah like you get the sense of like the wind or, or the rain or something kind of hitting them yeah. you know like and, and, and the way in which it um falls onto a human body and when you think that all of those um you know the white marble sculptures that we see today would have originally all been painted which most people forget um and so it, yeah if they're painted they'd look even more lifelike and you know in many ways because you'd have all the kind of like uh yeah shading and, and all that kind of stuff um so in some museums you can see um re- you know the reconstructions of the paint and it's it's quite startling particularly the eyes like really stand out in a way that the white marble sculptures they look kind of yeah you know they're kind of blank eyes aren't they but with, with, yeah, with painted on eyes they really they're almost you. eerie right yeah, 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 yeah. wouldn't want to meet those statues in a dark dark alleyway <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Laura, to what extent is it possible to put us in the shoes of one of these kind of path-breaking sculptors in antiquity? You know, what kind of evidence do we have for the way they actually did their work? Well, it's it's a little bit hard in some senses because there's very few individuals that we actually know the names of the sculptors themselves. So from ancient Greece, um, you know, in the kind of classical period, um, we have the names of some who were particularly famous, mainly um, because the Romans were so keen on copying the sculptures that they had created that their names have come down to us. Um, but interestingly, that means that often from Rome, we don't have any names at all of some of the of the sculptors because they're kind of, well, yeah, like co- copyists, let's oh, say. Oh, it's in like in the, manner, in the manner of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which is interesting because often mm. the, scu- the Greek sculptors that they're copying, as I said, well, they're working in bronze, whereas the Roman sculptors are working in marble. So it's actually a completely different art form um in you know in 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 many ways so it's actually quite incredible that they managed to create a replica sculpture from a completely different material because the whole process is um completely different as well so i mean some of the yeah some of the uh named sculptures sculptors that we know of who are like you know kind of like say the masters um from ancient greece are like myron who um made the discobolos statue you know the guy throwing the discus um, oh yeah who's like bent down and that's kind of like a, obviously a very interesting uh way to well it's just such a kind of like dynamic movement isn't it to to show someone and it's not just like standing straight but like you know kind of with one arm raised and all that kind of stuff then we've got phidias who is the um key uh well sculptor doing all the artistic decoration of the acropolis in athens um and also the um huge uh, statue of Olympian uh, Zeus at Olympia. Um, we've also got Polycletus. He um, made a very, very famous sculpture called the Doryphoros statue, which was a spear bearer. So a man um, kind of in a relaxed pose, but with a spear um, kind of resting on like on the floor, but like on his shoulder. And that sculpture was really important for um, the idea of contraposto, which is like... Um, yeah, this idea of kind of being tense on one side, but relaxed on the other side of your body. Oh. Um, and then we've got Praxiteles. And what, who, what, what was like, that about? Is there, do, what, what was the appeal of showing 
a body in in that kind of orientation? I mean, what, was it just really a matter of showing how realistic this this art form could be made to look? Yeah, or I mean, there... I think that yeah. it's, it's one of the early kind of ways in which the Greeks are trying to break out of that more Egyptian-influenced Kuroi statue form. So they are usually just more static. So he's, yes, he's static, he's standing there, but you can you you get more of a sense of like the movement of his body like a more like a living breathing person who's just momentarily rested if that makes sense so aside from those like named greek sculptors that you know are, are very very famous um we then know in, in rome for example like their portraiture becomes much more um in in use so people would kind of ask for their portraits to be done but we don't have the names of the of the sculptors that were doing that. We have the names of the person the portrait was of, um, but not the portrait artist, if that makes sense. Um, and of course, all the all the emperors that have so much, you know, statuary um, associated with them, we know them because of who they represent rather than um, who sculpted them. Um, yeah, it's really a, a different thing entirely from sort of, uh, you know, what pops to mind is the Tudor court and Hans Holbein the Younger, who is, of course, yeah. the royal painter at the time. So, so that's really interesting. And and it it really does sort of support all of these um, these reasons that you outlined for for why people were producing this sculpture, you know, honoring gods, displaying wealth, moving into this uh, display of power and and mm-hmm. wealth on on a sort of political level. By the time we get into the to the Roman period, so how did one break into this kind of work? How did you become the sculptor to the emperor? Well, this this is quite interesting because I think that there's there's some conflicting arguments in the you know kind of um, archaeological historical world about who exactly is involved in the actual sculpting itself. So obviously, like I said, we have the the names of these like famous masters who must have had a lot of you know wealth and privileges and this kind of thing, um, but. Often it seems that in Greece, at least, they were often metics, which are kind of foreigners living in a city state, which is not where they were born in. So, for example, in Athens, that would mean that if you were a metic, you wouldn't have any voting rights in the democracy. Um, And you also, you know, so we've got those kind of like those people who are maybe creating their own workshops. And we know, for example, that the... um, Uh, vase painters were often metics and they lived in a kind of slightly separate part of the city so perhaps the sculptors were also kind of um, separated in that sense Um, but we also from uh, Greece know that um, a lot of philosophers said that learning about the history of art and learning how to do art was part of becoming um, you know an elite uh, nobleman you know like that you needed to learn about these things in order to be um considered well-educated let's say um and so you know there are also like schools of design that start to be um created that probably only more elite families would be able to um you know be able to attend if that makes sense um and then aside from kind of let's say the creation of uh big pieces of art 
uh, itself. When I think of sculptors, I don't just think of kind of sculptures in the round of humans or gods, you know, like I'm also thinking about um, stonemasons, for example, that are just building all the architecture of all these incredible marble buildings that have survived for thousands of years. Um, And those groups of people are quite different groups of people. Um, So, you know, you may have slaves working in the quarries, for example, um, who had been captured in war and, and, and kind of sent there to spend, you know, hours and hours just d- digging out um, marble from the quarries. But it's not that easy to just um, dig marble um, because it's got big fissures in it, like natural fissures in the rock. So you need to have people that really understand about where you chisel. Um, and we have examples, um, for example, in Naxos, there's a Koroi statue that's still stuck in the, in the, in the hillside because uh, you know, someone made an error with their chisel and it like, oh. cut through itself, you know, like and kind of like broke the sculpture. So they didn't bother kind of um, cutting the rest of it out of the out, out of the mountainside. Um, so, yeah, we've got kind of like a big range of people. We've got kind of like the more elite people that are kind of, uh, you know, trying to finish their education and a kind of, uh, I don't know, if you think about it in a different time period, like kind of like 18th century grand, grand tour-esque way, you know, kind of like, oh, I need to know all about these famous sculptures and um and how they work and what the kind of rules of art are and then you've got the artists themselves many of whom uh you know may have been elite people who've gone to these special schools or are foreigners working in a different city state who've got a commission and then you've got other stonemasons who are yeah either um slaves or maybe um you know just people of of a lower working class that are involved in what is still really quite complex work um you know just think about like fluting marbles, uh, columns, sorry, you know, like, uh, you know, when you create the grooves in the columns, how you have to like make sure that they're all completely um, in line with each other and, you know, that the blocks are straight and, and all that. Kind no, of stuff. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it creates it. It a lot of skill and it's, it's a different yeah. skill, but like, yeah, e- yeah. E- equal skill in my view anyway. Absolutely. And well, I think it's so interesting that um, you point out that well, while certainly this was the purview of elites in terms of understanding the kind of art that has been produced in the past and what might be um, be copied and, and used in the present day or, or in, in contemporary times then, sorry, not the present day now, the present, the present ancient, yeah. the ancient present. Um, but I think that's so fascinating that, you know, you talk about the slave labor required to, to hoik the materials into place. And, and that makes a lot of sense, but I, I have to say, I was immediately, um, my ears perked up when you were talking about a statue that was left in the mountainside rather than completed and moved. Were, were some of these monumental figures carved in C2 where the quarries were located? Yeah. So not, um, not to a degree. So not like completely finished just kind of like the the vague outlines of them um so usually you know kind of yeah like a kind of squarish shape for the head and the and maybe perhaps the arms and the legs because obviously you want to try and get rid of as much marble as possible before you get yeah, out that makes complete mountain. sense yeah. but i wouldn't have thought be so much heavier, isn't it? Um, you get your delivery of your gigantic two ton, ton block of marble oh it's mm. outside come out and sign for it <laughs> yeah. yeah no i mean that's so yeah you don't you don't want to carry <laughs> excess marble but you also need to maintain yeah. enough excess marble to protect it um because otherwise it's going you know you've got the risk of breaking essentially um and then you've got to start all over again so <laughs> that's not going to be good 
Yeah, no, never even thought about that. I, mm. I love that. And and well, and since we're talking about kind of the the supply chain for for making these things, what what kind of tools were used to to shape this this stone into these incredible realistic shapes? Do do we know? Um, so we know that they were using like bronze chisels, um, and you know probably wooden hammers, for example. So lots of like hand tools of various. Various various size chisels and saws and hammers and uh, wedges, things like compasses, squares, and things to to make sure that they're um, you know being measured um, correctly. And in terms of like moving the actual uh, blocks, a lot of pulleys. Um, you know, the Greeks were so good at uh, working out kind of the angles that were required to have the least uh, amount of physical force needed by a human in order to move something. So um, yeah, like le levers and pulleys to um, get the rock out of, or, or move it wherever it needed to be, um, essentially with as, with, with as least uh, human energy as, as, as possible. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing when you think about all that. And so was this, was this an entirely male endeavor or do we have any evidence at all that any women participated in this art? I mean, I wish we did. <laughs> I mean, one of my kind of specialist interests is kind of, you know, where are the women? What are the women doing in yeah. history in general? No, you know, like, I, I, I know that. That's why I particularly wanted, wondered, you know, I, I know you are one who is likely to have looked for the evidence. And I know it's hard to find women in, in many nooks and crannies, unfortunately, of yeah. ancient history. But yeah. I mean, that that's just the unfortunate result is that we just don't have any, um, you know, concrete evidence that they were involved. Um, uh, you know, considering the evidence is relatively scarce, as I've said already in terms of like name sculptors anyway, um, you know, I think it would have been it would have been so unusual for a, a woman to be involved in this that, uh, you know, yeah, we just don't know. Saying that, though, quite a lot of um, sculptors got into the business via their families um so you know if you were if you know if you were a, a father that had a son and a daughter and you were teaching the son how to do something like perhaps the daughter also you know had a go or or, or learn how to do it but yeah, until she turned 12 were, or whatever it was i mean i know a little bit yeah, more well, about yeah i mean but unfortunately they're getting married so young as well exactly so, you know. yeah um, and i you know I, it, from what i know um it wasn't the most progressive thinking in terms of, of gender equality in no. either Greek or Rome. I mean, Rome anything would have just been always at the discretion of the father, basically. Um, yeah. So as soon as it stepped out of the gender roles that the father thought were appropriate, and that could have been more or less progressive for different families, I guess, you know, um, just like today, I guess. Yeah, um, fair enough. You, you know, but it ultimately still rested in the hands of a man, right, uh, in terms of what a woman could or could not do um saying that though like you know obviously we have a lot of um a lot of greek and roman statuary is based on um female anatomy so women were being like you know kind of used as models in some sense um perhaps these could have been um courtesans that uh you know came to drinking parties and this kind of stuff so you know we're not considered mm. elite women because they were always kept uh, a lot more separate um in society but you know women i guess 
played a role in that sense and then we can think about you know what's the role of a muse like does a muse oh yeah the male to the artist it did not emerge full-blown in in the 19th century with with the impressionists now did it (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's it's very easy to think of just like women sitting there as models not saying or doing anything but like you know maybe they had some kind of influence in how they were presented i don't know it's just, i mean it's all conjecture isn't it at the end of the day but let's not forget like the the humans behind all of this you know um even if women were subjected um to oppression doesn't mean that they didn't resist in ways that they could these artists who were producing these sculptures is there any evidence for the sort of scope of work one might expect. I mean, could could somebody essentially make a living doing this full time? Well, again, I mean, we're not really quite sure about their lives in all honesty. I mean, we know they, they would have worked from dawn till dusk, like most other people in the ancient world did in general, just because of sunlight, you know, um, you know, so you had to have uh, oil lamps or, you know, you didn't have obviously electricity in order to work at night. Right. So, um, you know, dawn till dusk was really the 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 working day. Um, but in terms of like a career, I imagine the the more famous sculptors would have definitely um, doing it full time because they were well known and 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 we you know we can trace, for example, like multiple sculptures from the same artist that have been found in different uh, city states in Greece, for example. Um, but I imagine that perhaps like some people who you know again like perhaps the kind of slightly more uh the middle ground artists or the or the slightly uh lower lower class stonemasons they weren't working on sculpture or you know again with sculpture i'd also put things like um uh creating friezes you know um so not complete sculpture in the round but like you know decorative artwork for uh temples for example um you know yeah were they just working on general architectural construction because there was like so much of that going on all the time as well so if you couldn't get a commission to do a specific uh you know full sculpture in the round then you'd probably be just working with bronze or marble in in other forms so for bronze you know would you be making weapons and that kind of stuff as well or Mm -hmm. if you're working with marble would you be working on other architectural construction sites you know on other parts of the of the building that weren't the decoration yeah, yeah. So sort of an ancient gig economy, it sounds like. Was, <laughs> yeah, I guess probably... again, we think that these things are new, but they're not really. Oh, no, no, no. And, and, and that just sort of makes me wonder about the, the workflow. I mean, for the most part, was this work commissioned? Or do, do you think there might have been any way in which individuals were producing on spec, you know, and, and trying to find a market later. I could just imagine somebody thinking, well, this, this, I'm going to make a freeze in the, in the latest style, because I, I know it's very popular and, and I, I suspect I will find somebody to sell it to. I mean, mm. or would that be just unthinkable because of the, the opportunity cost, you know, to, to put, for example, other potentially paying work aside and also sourcing the materials. Well, I think this is where we start to see a bit of a difference between Greece and Rome. So, um, you know, in in Greece, usually the uh, sculpture is being commissioned by a very, very wealthy individual or by the state itself. So for the Athenian necropolis, for example, the general Pericles has to literally persuade the assembly to vote for all of this, uh, you know, kind of like new sculptural decoration and and, and temple building that he wants to do in order to show the 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 dominance of Athens over the Delian League after the success in the Persian Wars. But in Rome, 
we've got obviously the, the you know, we've got the imperial stuff going on with the emperors who basically have you know similar goals right um you know uh increasing their own propaganda of themselves as great rulers and 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 yeah you know potentially restoring the republic or being a great kind of um you know benevolent father figure but in rome there is much more of a business in um decorative sculpture for the home um, oh, okay. including in the round sculpture as well so that's again when we start to see these copies which is where most of the um copies we have come from so they were from wealthy roman villas where the owner of the villa had decided that they want a you know uh polyclitus's uh Derifros statue and they want myron's discobolos and they want you know this that and that statue um and those, because they were based on um, like canon original artworks, could have just been created and put in a shop a little bit like you see in a tourist, you know, yeah. any tourist destination in Greece <laughs> and Italy today, you know, like you see them all there and you could just buy them in various sizes as well. So not just like completely full size, but often we see um, kind of busts, for example, which were not something really that um, the Greeks did. Um, so, yeah, slightly, slightly different, different, different in that sense, I think. Was there any sort of professional organization or or um, accreditation that that you've come across any evidence for amongst these groups of sculptors? You mentioned that there was a, a, a sort of a, a vase producing workshop that mm. that you know about. Possibly some of these sculptors could have been working in a group together, but you know, did you hang out your shingle and say, you know, I <laughs> I am I am you know, vetted by X, Y, and Z or, or did you, yeah, I don't, I don't know what. what I mean, I think of... they would probably have like, if they had worked in the workshop of one of the famous artists or had been trained by a well-known artist then they would have made a point about that, you know, a bit like, I guess people say whichever university they came from, you know, and maybe that encourages people to, to hire them, let's say. Um, but quite a lot of, I mean, again, it depends on what type of sculptor we're talking about, but a lot of them would have trained within their, families um as well um particularly on some of the islands in greece which are well known for their specific marbles that are there so like you know in, in different in different parts of different islands um there are specific types of marbles so not only slightly different colors but also like um varying degrees of shiny inclusions for example that when you polish them become like much more brighter white um so you know if you were born or lived on one of those islands, then you would probably, you know, as uh, quarrying marble was a big export for some of those islands, you'd probably kind of get involved in the business in that sense um, as well. And then if you'd gone, if you, if you then went to another um, city state, you could say, oh, well, you know, I'm from Naxos. I know how to sculpt Naxian marble. I, you know, like my father, you know, and all his grandparents also used to do this, you know? Um, so I guess, yeah. It, that's as far as we can get really knowing yeah else, yeah yeah we do know that people and say like from the workshop of this person you know like we can kind of uh tell from some sculptures that they aren't the actual master themselves but are a student of that master um so they must have been working in the same workshop or yeah like yeah well and and we see that sort of attribution in artworks going all the way up you know through the renaissance and beyond well yeah right? exactly it's not it's nothing new it's the same yeah. um right same idea and how were these artists viewed in society? Was this a respected profession or one that people might aspire to? Do we know? 
So again, so the the ancient philosophers, so like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they all say that um, you know sculpture is just like poetry, rhetoric, painting, and music as an indispensable element of mental and moral development of a citizen. Um, so you know it's just as important as doing you know going to the, the gym or or you know practicing uh, your uh, warrior skills. You know, um, but there's a difference between those who were engaged in art in a kind of slightly more kind of like, let's say art critic type of way or art history type of way um, and might've had a go at doing some themselves. And then those who were actually just literally doing the, like the manual labor of the. Hoiking the marbles. The, yeah, literally. In the sun. <laughs> like, yeah. So like the, 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 the elites wouldn't have seen themselves as people that were going to go to the quarry and like, you know, get the marble but you know like if if there was an opportunity for them to have a, a little bit of a go or to tell people how to do it <laughs> I think you know they, that that was when that kind of um came to the fore a little bit more um yeah. so yeah the, yeah, the, the Greeks no, and Romans no. were not afraid to be art critics to each other and and again it's, it's nothing new really is it it's just you know it's the way, it's oh, the way art is often everyone's a everyone. critic everyone's yeah. a critic and and that makes me wonder too so you know who who exactly would have held these artists accountable? I mean, obviously, if if um, an artwork was particularly commissioned by an individual, whether the emperor or a wealthy villa owner, they would be able to react to it and say either, well, that's good enough or it's not. But um, what about the general public? W were there any outcries over any particular productions that didn't quite meet expectations yeah no there are actually some quite interesting ones i mean athens is slightly different from the other city states because obviously it's you know uh playing with the idea of democracy in the fifth century isn't it so they actually have like um city officials who um were in charge of ensuring that all the expenses for marble or paint or uh, you know gold leaf and all of this kind of stuff was actually accounted for um so particularly for um the uh the 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 building of the monuments on on, on the acropolis in the fifth century we know that phidias who's one of these very famous um sculptors was accused of embezzling um the money oh <laughs> and he was gonna re report to the 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 public jury courts um if he couldn't literally prove every single little piece of everything had 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 been accounted for and that's partly because pericles um the general who was kind of um leading athens at the time had a lot of his own personal enemies as well who then also served as the city officials so they were like oh well let's you know kind of if, if we um get Phidias, um, sue Phidias, uh, Pericles is going to, you know, kind of be disparaged as well. And actually takes Pericles to kind of step in. And Phidias had kept all like really good accounts of everything, which is actually partly why we know how, you know, so much of the things cost and this kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> lucky for us as, as, as archaeologists and historians. Um, so yeah, in Athens, there were, there were like courts, let's say, that were, that were involved in, in, in making sure that people were not, um, uh, yeah, taking too much money for 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 what they had been um, charged for, and because of the way they were, you, you mentioned kind of like communities, like the actual public uh, saying something about a piece of art, like they could do that as well via the democracy. But there's a really not there's another really interesting there's a kind of a funny scandal actually um, by uh, when Praxiteles, um, who's another of these famous sculptors, um, 
in the fourth century made a sculpture of what became known as the Aphrodite of Cnidos. And this is a really, really famous sculpture. I'm sure a lot of, you know, if you saw a picture of it, people would know what it was. It's uh, Aphrodite kind of crouching down. Um, she's completely uh, naked, but she's like reaching for, for, a, for a, well, for a piece of clothing, right? And from whatever angle the, the, the viewer comes upon the statue, it looks like um, you are interrupting her, like you are the person that, like it, she that you're startling her, and that's why she's like grabbing her clothes. Um, and this was considered like far too sexualized um, for mm. the for the people that it was destined um, to 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 be for. Um, and so there, there were two copies made. Um, the city of Kos um, opted for one in which Aphrodite has clothes on, but Cnidos <laughs> went for the naked one. Um, and it actually basically became a massive tourist attraction. And we have like coins from Cnidos that have the Aphrodite on it, um, you know, which shows that uh, pe people kind of, yeah, like went, went, went to go and uh, see it, I guess. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Oh, that's so funny. So we we know what the the um, social mores of what some of the, <laughs> these areas differed from what version of Aphrodite they chose. I love Yeah, that. we actually, we have like um, some epigrams as well that were kind of made to emphasize the point of um, it being such a scandalous sculpture. Um, so like Aphrodite was said to have said, well, Paris, Adonis and Anchises saw me naked. Those I know of, but how did Praxiteles see me? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> well, and, and it's actually- it's It was so funny. realistic. It was considered so realistic. <laughs> it's like, you know a little too well. Well, mm. and so many of these statues were depicting nude individuals, particularly men. So mm. it's interesting that this is a statue of a woman and not even a mortal woman, but a goddess. And it raised this kind of alarm, really. Mm. And then like later on, like, you know, Ovid in, in Metamorphoses tells us the story of Pygmalion, who um, was a sculptor himself, who made a sculpture, sculpture of um, Aphrodite or Venus and fell in love with the statue that he literally made. Um, oh, that's and, doing your job too yeah. well. Yeah, that's actually that's amazing. <laughs> that. That's actually that sounds like a little backhanded comment to himself. Frankly, yeah, I am such a good true. artist that I yeah. have I have dazzled. And now I've just my thrown myself off a cliff because I'm too good. I'm in love with my statue. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. But there's, I mean, again, there's loads, so many loads of interesting examples, but um, uh, we're talking much later now, um, for example, the column of Marcus Aurelius in Rome, which was um, made in what the uh, second century AD. Um, it looks very much like Trajan's column, which again, if you saw a picture of it, you might um, recognize it, but it's like kind of just a, yeah, a big form. column with, uh, yeah. Um, so the column of Marcus Aurelius is like nearby, just kind of up the street, um, but it's surrounded by, like buildings now um but the the story there was that marcus aurelius had um successfully defeated um some tribes in germania um thanks to a what was called a rain miracle um because there was a you know a, a, lots of rain and it kind of uh you know washed away the the people who were trying to attack the the roman fort and um the way in which they decided to show the rain god on the column of Marcus Aurelius was quite ambiguous. So instead of, you know, usually you would have um, Zeus, right, or Jupiter um, in Roman, uh, 
you know, because as, as God of the sky and lightning and, and, and all this kind of stuff, like he, he should be the one that is, is bringing the rain and, and, you know, bringing the kind of Roman victory over Germania. But instead we've got this kind of like interesting water God who's like kind of uh, like uh, all like has a like long beard and long hair. And, and, and that's like the rain, like falling down. And some people suggested that this was because um, in the second century AD, we've got a kind of like growth of Christianity in the Roman empire and some groups had claimed that it was the Christian God that had created the rain miracle rather than Jupiter. And so in the art, um, perhaps to placate both groups, Marcus Aurelius had decided to, instead of show Jupiter, show a kind of slightly more ambiguous deity of some kind um, so that both groups would, would kind of um, be, uh, yeah, placated. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, and and that's actually a, a really good segue to what I'd like to talk about next, which is, you know, kind of the legacy of this kind of public art, which was so often created for political purposes to honor mythical or historical figures or events um, and express, you know, present present day wealth and power. You know, how how has this profession and the kind of art it produces changed and and how has it stayed the same in our modern day? One of the quite interesting things actually about sculpture in marble at least is that, um, which I, I learned in a, in a marble workshop in Greece, is, is, is that you have to start with the nose um, on the corner of a block of marble because the nose is the bit that sticks out the most on your face. Um, so that is still adhered to if you're going to start so that's sculpting a person's face. start on the corner yeah and the corner <laughs> uh, the corner is the is is the nose unless you you're sculpting sculpt voldemort back. right with his flat well yeah because he doesn't have a nose <laughs> um but yeah so i that 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 remains the same today because i guess you know human faces are aside from voldemort yeah, well you are, don't reinvent um, the wheel if there's a process that works and yeah. you're working a hard material yeah i love that and Interestingly, the um, the uh, Acropolis Restoration Service, which is currently uh, restoring huge parts of the of the Parthenon at the moment, I mean, it's been going on for decades. Yeah, um, it sure has. I remember yeah. the, the Parthenon was covered up when I went, you know, at university practically. <laughs> it yeah, was crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but they are all st they're still they're still carving the most of the marble by hand and most of the marble working is carried out by craftsmen who come from the island of Tinos, um, from traditional marble working families. Um, so I think that's like really interesting because there's like really a, there's a legend in Tinos that says that um, those uh, inhabitants of that island were taught the art of sculpture by Phidias himself. Um, who was the oh. original sculptor of the marble? So you know, like the, even today, they're kind of like building on that legend and 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 playing with it. You know, you said before, what credentials do you have? Well, actually, even That's today, probably as good as it gets. Yeah, exactly. It's like well, Phidias originally built these, and now we're going to restore it. Like you know, the island of Tinos learned from um, Phidias. So Phidias be, style. Yeah, um, and 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 marble sculptors from. Um, those islands have been used to make most of the like marble edifices on most of modern Athens, uh, particularly in the old center, I um, mean, the concert hall library and university and all that kind of stuff were all uh, originally stonemasons from those islands as well. Um, and yeah, so they're kind of still fo fo following in their ancestors 
footsteps in that sense, I guess. I love that. And, and so really interesting that traditional methods are still being used and lineages are being drawn directly to legitimate, you know, the, the credentials of, of the modern artists who are involved in restoring these antique sculptures. But I, I still wonder, you know, what about, what about the meanings that the viewing public ascribes to sculptures today? Do you see any big changes or I don't know. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of parallels we can actually draw, you know, between what we see going on in Western societies today and these questions of, about cancel culture and, and mm. how sculpture and public art ought to be changed or not to reflect current mood and concerns. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the idea of like state sanctioned art is absolutely nothing new. I mean, like, you know, in oh, God, no, it's 5,000 years old. Exactly. Mesoamerica yeah, I mean, like, even. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. As, as soon as you start having art, like the state or whoever is in power wants to try and send very specific messages about their wealth and power. And whether that wealth and power is in relationship to gods or just as a, you know, human being, that's, you know, usually the message that is, is, is wanting to be um Sent. I mean, I think that you start to see in Rome a slightly more, let's say, modern version of the state-sanctioned art for individuals who've achieved something of note, um, which is usually what, you know, the the statues that we see in public spaces today that are particularly, uh, you know, and quite rightly so, are, are causing uh, controversy. The controversy about those sculptures being in public spaces is also nothing new. The idea of removing sculptures or statues of any kind um, because they are promoting a message of the state or of an individual is something that we see a lot. So in in in, in Rome they called it damnatio memoriae, um, and that meant that basically uh, certain emperors, so particularly Caligula, Nero, and Domitian, for example, um, literally had their names removed from everything. So if they if their name was 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 engraved on any monument, it would be chiselled out. And we see that on so many monuments. Sometimes it's you know another emperor's name is chiselled over the top. Sometimes it's just left, um, and all of their you know kind of uh, sculptures torn down and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, the, the idea was trying to literally remove them from the historical record. There's a slight difference, I guess, in the sense that uh, for ancient people, the idea of not being remembered was so um, frightening because the uh, afterlife was not something pleasant. You know, it wasn't like somewhere that you go for the, for the Greco-Roman religion. You know, it's, it's not a great place that you want to go to. You know, the, to be remembered was a way to kind of live again in society so if your name was removed that really threatened your ability to live again somehow you know i don't know i, I always think of this when i when i'm always you know talking about a historical story or teaching or whatever you know i always think how amazing it is i'm you know saying the names of of, of people who existed like you know potentially thousands of years ago and yet we still know their name and they do kind of like live again in that moment when you teach a new generation of students you know about these people and and, and the deeds they have done you know like um so i think it's kind of interesting that particularly so back to the statue point that like you know even when uh certain individuals are are, are trying to be removed from the uh artistic record almost those individuals have 
kind of become more famous in a way. Right? I know. I was actually. Yeah. (laughs) So like, it doesn't mean that because you take the statue down, no one will remember who they are. And I think that's what people are slightly missing the point on at the moment in that there's a difference between why is the why is this sculpture in a public space? What what was the purpose of putting it there in the first place? Who put it there? Why was it put there? Does it still need to be there? Does it still serve that purpose? Or are you keeping it there because it, well, you know, yeah, like for posterity, but in that sense, you know, can it be in a museum or recontextualized in some way? Because again, honestly, most sculptures in public spaces don't have, um, uh, kind of plaques associated with them that really explain who the person is or what they did really I mean sometimes it's like one line and their name right um oh yeah at most and sometimes it's it's impossible to see if something is up high or yeah absolutely and and I I think you make a really important point there that you know this absolutely we need to we need to both learn from the past and I think we do need to actually honor what happened in the past and look at it critically at the same time in the present day from the, you know, the vantage point, which we're standing at now is it's always going to be very different in terms of how society is organized, you know, but just eliminating it altogether doesn't seem to me to solve the problem at all. And I, I do think that, um, it to take a lesson, frankly, from some of these ancient cultures, which did topple deface, alter all sorts of representations of of people who they wished to um, either topple from memory, which as you pointed out is really hard to do, or uh, sort of supersede their accomplishments in the case of political leaders. There's something to be said for uh, overwriting a simple name on a plaque with uh, an explanation of, of why whatever they stand for um, in their own time and place is no longer acceptable in modern society. You know, use it as a teaching opportunity as opposed to effacing altogether what happened. But it's quite interesting that I think that in Britain and America, this has become quite a heated debate in a way that when, for example, you know, the end of the kind of Soviet era, a lot of Soviet sculptures were pulled down and the West thought that that was a great idea. I didn't have a problem with that, you know, um, and and then I think it's because it's a different. Well, it's, it's whereas not in people, my backyard, people, right? I, yeah, I mean, well, I think. <laughs> precisely. But it's it's funny that for some things we think it's okay to pull things down, and then for others we don't. When actually the 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 issue itself is still the same issue, isn't it? About like why why is the art there in the first place? Who put it there? What does it represent? And if it's not representative of what people want it to represent then does it really need to be there or can it be somewhere else I guess is the is the point but obviously as a historian and archaeologist I'm I I I don't want things melted down because then we you know we won't we won't have those you know they are historical artifacts aren't they they are part of the past to preserve them but do they need to be in public spaces that's a different argument I think and again it's something that both the Greeks and Romans thought about to exactly the same extent that we are now you know do we want to worship this god as much as we want to worship that one do we want to honor this uh ruler as much as we want to honor that one you know like and and yeah do you see any parallels between the societal changes that happened in the roman empire to changes that are happening in our western societies today laura 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we mentioned already that Roman art, particularly Roman imperial art, has a very specific um, public purpose in that the emperors um, are trying to associate themselves with specific victories and specific messages to the people. It's actually quite interesting that, that each individual Roman emperor can be identified by their hairline. Yeah, right, <laughs> it, and the new hairdos. Yeah. I yeah, didn't yeah. know that Nero pioneered this great popular hairdo, but I, I learned that when I went to the British Museum exhibit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a way that we often like try to uh, recognise the, the portraiture of individual um, emperors. Um, so, I mean, part, part of that is literally like, oh, you know, what was their hair exactly like that? I don't know, but like it was a way for people to instantly like recognize which one was which, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like I think Augustus in particular is really interesting in, in this sense because the way in which he comes to power is so like the fall of the Roman Republic is so interesting and complex, and that you know he's involved in a civil war essentially to gain power for himself but to claim that he had won it on behalf of the senate on behalf of the people yeah. um which means that when he then becomes emperor and becomes the all-powerful ruler he has to still quite kind of like downplay the fact that he is like one ruler i mean you know he claims that he's first amongst equals right um but obviously that is <laughs> not true as an emperor um and uh, so much of the, the the kind of propaganda machine around Augustus is, is is very impressive in that for someone that had such a uh, complex and very brutal beginning to his reign, like literally kind of, you know, murdering people that disagreed with him and all that kind of stuff. The general image of Augustus as an emperor and as a ruler is a, a ruler of peace that he brought the Pax yes, Romana, the Pax to, Romana yeah, right? to, to, to large swathes of the empire. And he, you know, he was the one, if it wasn't for him, everything would have still been awful. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was the one that we should all thank for everything. Well, and the flourishing of art and culture that yeah. is ascribed to his reign. No, I mean, I, I, I hear you. It's and we absolutely have this, fascinating, right? The, the sleight of hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have this like complex in Rome called the Arapacus, which is like an altar to peace. Um, you know, again, like, you know, the altar to peace built with the spoils of war, ironically. Uh, <laughs> um, and... Uh, yeah, like you know, all of the images on the Arapacus are of him and his dynasty, you know, his imperial dynasty uh, and claiming that he's kind of like, yeah, restoring the Republic, even though it's like showing him as uh, kind of like a, a despot. an all-powerful ruler. <laughs> and we've got this, a, a really interesting sculpture, in, again, to do with Augustus based on um, where art is destined for is the Primporta sculpture of Augustus. And this is like the, probably the most famous sculpture of Augustus. You know, he's got his hand, um, you know, kind of his finger raised in the air um, and he's wearing like a cuirass. Um, oh, I can see military. it in my mind's eye. Yeah, exactly. Like that's <laughs> yeah, the, that, when you think of Augustus, that's often yeah, like that's the, the image that you see of him. Now, like, where do you think that sculpture was placed? Like, wh where would you think it would be placed? I think it would be placed somewhere quite public. Well, it, where we found it archaeologically is in the house of Livia, which is his wife. Oh, okay. So that kind of like, again, the context of where things are massively changes the message. It's the family of, portrait. Of, <laughs> yeah, kind of. But when you think that the house of um, 
you know, the emperor and his wives, etc., would have also been quite a public space in some senses, but public for only certain people, namely senators. So the message he is giving to the senators when they come into his house is, I claim to be first among equals, except here's a massive statue of me with my arm raised wearing a military outfit. Just watch, just watch yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and I think that that is so interesting in terms of... That is, I didn't you know, know that that's where the, where it was uh, situated. And, and the, the image on, on, on the cuirass um, breastplate is actually... Um, of the Parthian standards being given back to Augustus. And these have been lost in 53 BC at the Battle of Carhai by Crassus. And through diplomacy, Augustus managed to get them back after decades of, you know, being in, in the East in Parthia. And so it's like interesting, again, it's like, so, you know, he's wearing a military breastplate, except the image on the breastplate is an act of diplomacy, except the statue itself is in, you know, the his house where senators are coming to give him advice or, you know, kind of supposedly make decisions in which who's really making the decisions? Like, is it really diplomacy? Is it really democracy? Or is it really, um, yeah, like an emperor making decisions on everyone else's um, behalf? Oh, the complexity. that That's actually really interesting. And it, you know, it makes you think about the the, the mob family, right? That you, you come and you you pay your homage. And yeah. you're, you're familiar. Yeah, you're, you're part of the family. Just don't slip up. <laughs> well, we always say as archaeologists, right? Like context is everything. Context is everything. If you don't context, have context is something, absolutely everything. It doesn't mean anything, you know, like in, in, in the same way. And that just with that one example, like you can see how the the context of it completely changes the way in which it would have been perceived. And obviously now it's used as, you know, kind of a, a symbol of Rome, a symbol of, you know, you see it all over the place, that, that, that sculpture and like so many replicas have been made of it and used in different contexts, but the original context, or at least the original context we know of, is that and that's actually quite i've never comment. heard the i i, I want to thank you so much for sharing that because <laughs> it's kind of like a mind-blowing revelation actually i have seen and and studied that that very <laughs> statue in many other contexts just talking about his accomplishments um but to actually find out the the layers of meaning that you could discern from where it was located is well, and, and again, remember at the very beginning, I said that these these white marble sculptures were originally painted. And if you see reconstructions of the paint on that specific statue, you realize that on his leg, next to his leg on the kind of um, the, well, what we call the kind of like stand that is needed for the marble to actually like stabilize so that it can stand up, is a um, like a cherub on a dolphin. And you don't notice that until you and then but but then when it's painted it's like whoa like you can see it like really clearly and that's a reference to the fact that um julius caesar claimed that uh venus aphrodite was his uh you know ancestor so actually again it's like he's a demigod yeah he's a demigod and and yeah he's not wearing sandals that also reflects being a demigod and and i think that some of these little tiny things that you don't notice so much when it's uh, yeah, not in its original context and not painted and that kind of stuff. Uh, well, and when we're not of that culture and of that time mm -hmm. looking at it, these are probably symbols which would have been like neon signs for these senators mm -hmm. yeah. entering Augustus's and Livia's home. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I, yeah, it, it's really making me lean towards the um, proclamation that uh, art uh, in a public context is probably not often art for its own sake <laughs> <laughs> even even a quasi-public 
slash private <laughs> settings, such as a, an emperor's home. When, when people in the distant future look back on our own public art, do you think there's anything that would stand out the most? Anything that might confuse them? I always tend to think that like people in the future are going to think of our current era as a little bit of a kind of strange dark age because we're putting archaeologically at least um, aside from plastic uh, (laughs) which will be in the earth forever I guess um, the way in which we now put so much of our um, information online means that if you for whatever reason can't access or use digital information like if you found a laptop in the floor it wouldn't work right so like all of the information that's stored on it is lost essentially in a way that a a book or a inscription still keeps some information i think about this all the time as an archaeologist and and historian going into archives and well and uh, well archaeologically speaking it's it's major huge landfills as opposed to mm-hmm. a midden out back. You can't associate anything with any individual group, much less individual mm-hmm. household anymore. Yeah. I, so I there'd know. be like I loads of stuff, but like, it. yeah, kind of like yeah. no, no well, you're gonna have to use big statistical to analysis, right? To, to yeah. come up with aggregate um insights. Yeah. Well, I, I would just I, I mean that. Archaeologists always often like say things that you know uh, something is has a ritual meaning or something like that, but then you think they're like well, that's you know, when you can't explain it. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or like you know if something is particularly pervasive, right? So imagine like all the plastic bags of a supermarket. Like I'll be like, oh, like you know, what did that? The supermarket they, must be so uh, you know it's a god or it's uh, something. <laughs> hey, you know, as an archaeologist and educator, well, you know what what in particular about this topic of of public art really interests you the most i mean i think for me it's just like uh, on on a more basic like artistic level just the amount of skill it takes to actually craft or chisel anything out of stone you know um and and at the end of the day these are the things that have still survived the longest amount of time compared to so many other different forms of artwork you know it's still often uh, you know whether it's marble or, or other forms of stone masonry that have survived the longest and I just find that like so interesting that we can see and and, and trace the yeah the kind of like workings of these people you know from so far away in the distant past and yet it's still standing in front of you perhaps it looks slightly different to how it originally did maybe it doesn't have paint maybe it's got some missing or you know adjusted pieces to it but in essence you're still looking at and even though the context might be different if you're seeing it in a museum or whatever you're still seeing a piece of art that someone created so long ago but you know who knows maybe we'll end up finding some female master sculptor at some point that <laughs> might change all our opinions a little bit that's it. I'm going to be watching your byline for that. Uh, <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so interesting. I learned so much and um, I look forward to following your work and particularly your your upcoming uh, book series. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> While the days of classical antiquity are long gone, its legacies are still all around us. In some ways, it's clearer than ever that that statue in the middle of the town square isn't just a pretty face. 
but serves a variety of socio-political functions. Whether ancient or modern, public art by its nature highlights social divisions and inequities. And the context of any artistic work on display in our communities is a key part of that. After admiring the skill and passion that went into creating such a work, we have to ask, who is this piece serving? How? And why? And perhaps most importantly, is its original public context still the most appropriate way to honor and preserve it? Tough questions, but important ones, which are being asked in communities all over the world today. I'll end with a quote from Augustus, first emperor of Rome, who famously described his own legacy in terms of the monumental artworks created at his behest and in his honor. I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Oh, it was a bit more complicated than that, Augustus. And didn't you know it? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, time traveler. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries and visit WorkingOvertimePodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>